He speaks of His mother-like love for them and His father-like love for them. Those are the motives that, that we have to have if we're going to preach the Gospel boldly, if we're going to bear witness to the Gospel boldly. The question is, though, if those are the motives, well, how do we get the motives? Right? We want to preach the Gospel. We want to be bold as we live it out and as we speak it out. How do we do that? We have to fear God. We have to live to please Him. But where do we get that motive? Right? If, if, if the engine that drives effective ministry is, is boldness for the sake of the Gospel, what's the fuel we put in there to make that engine run? And that's where Paul goes in this morning's text. And the answer is, it's the Word of God. Verses 13 to 16, our text here this morning lays this out clearly. It tells us that the Word of God is what is effective. It's what, it, what, it's what affects faith. It's what produces faith. And it's also the Word of God that produces perseverance. And it's, it's as the Word of God produces those things in us, as it, as it produces faith and produces perseverance in us, that, that we're able then to live to please God and to live in love for others and so be bold in proclaiming the Gospel. What Paul is doing here as he lays this out for the Thessalonians is he's, he's, he's trying to get down to the, to the most foundational and basic thing, to the very roots of what makes ministry effective, of what, of what is kind of the foundation of his ministry and what's going to be the foundation of an effective ministry in the Thessalonian church too. And he's saying it's the Word of God. You must be built on the Word of God. You must be... Uh, welcoming the Word of God. You must be uh, desiring and, and filling yourself up with the Word of God. Because this is what is powerful and effective. It's an idea that Martin Luther took to heart. Um, Martin Luther has a, has a wonderful quote about the power of God's Word. He says this, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. That was Luther's confidence. It was his confidence because it's Paul's confidence, it's the Bible's confidence, and loved ones, it needs to be our confidence. All right, think about the way the Bible speaks of the word of God. Think of how the Bible begins. Genesis 1-3. God said, let there be light. And there's light. That's, that's what the Word of God does. That's the power of the Word of God to create. He speaks, the world is created out of nothing. Billions of galaxies burst into being at His Word. Isn't He the God who also speaks into being the, the new creation? Shouldn't we expect His, his Word Right, His Word that, that creates the new creation to have that same effectiveness and power to create. Paul himself makes this connection in 2 Corinthians 4.6. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. The Word of God, loved ones, is the means by which God produces Effective ministry. It's, it's how he produces faith and perseverance in us. So this is how Paul begins. Verse 13, our first heading, the word 
produces faith. When Paul first comes to Thessalonica, uh, the people there respond to it in faith. As he starts, he starts preaching the word, and they believe him. Listen to verse 13. He says, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is, in truth, the word of God. There's a few things to, to notice here. The first is that, once again, Paul starts by thanking God for what he sees in the Thessalonians. He sees their faith. And he doesn't, he doesn't say, isn't it wonderful that you Thessalonians figured this out and decided to put your faith in God? No, he sees their faith, and he says it's, it's glorious that God brings life where there was, there was only dead, dry bones before. He's giving all the credit to God. We've seen this already. He's thanking God for the Thessalonians' faith because it's only God who can produce that kind of faith. And again, Paul's going to the roots here. He's, he's going down to the very, the, the very foundations of things and, 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 and giving God the credit for his sovereign grace bringing to life this Thessalonian church. It's God who produces faith. It's true for them. It's true for us. How does God produce faith? What's the means he uses? The text here that we have makes it clear that Thessalonians' faith was produced by the word of God. They hear the word, and that's what produces their faith. This is put so clearly also in other scriptures. Romans 10.17 probably puts it most clearly of all. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That's why our catechism says the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effective means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Right, Just like we said, the same God who says, let there be light in the beginning, and there's light, says, let there be light in the new creation, in us, His people. And there's light. There's faith produced by His Word. Isn't that, isn't that our story of how we became Christians? Now you think of, think of the stories of conversion that you know. Isn't, isn't that the, the common thread? People hear the Word of God and they're brought to faith. Think of the great St. Augustine, right? the great father of the church. He's sitting in his garden. He's crushed beneath the weight of his sin. He finds that he can get no relief from it, no freedom from its guilt, and no freedom from its power. And then nearby, he he hears a voice. It sounds like a little child's voice uh, singing a little ditty. Take up and read. Take up and read. So he picks up the book he has there. It's it's the Bible. And he he looks, uh, it falls open to Romans 13, 14, and he reads the words, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have nothing to do with the desires of the flesh. And God uses that word to convince him and convert him. God uses his word. This happened to my grandfather, right? As he didn't grow up in a Christian home, he he grew up, they had a family Bible, but it was dusty and unused and just sat on the shelf. And then he felt compelled at one point to start reading the Bible. He started reading it and and he kept working through it and reading it and reading it. And he, he gets to the book of Hebrews and he reads about the glories of Christ, our high priest and substitute for our sins. And he's converted. He's saved by reading the life-giving Word of God. Has it happened to you, loved ones? Has the Word of God made you alive in Christ? How do you know if it has? 
Right? How, how do we know if the Word of God has produced this kind of life in us? Paul gives one way here that we can know. Uh, look at what the Thessalonians do when, once the Word of God has made them alive. Paul says this, You welcomed the Word, not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God. So God's Word produced faith in them, and that produces that in them that they welcome the Word more and more. We've seen this language of welcoming the Word show up already. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul used this same word back in verse 6 to describe to the church there how they received the Word of God. He says they welcomed it in the face of fierce opposition. It's, a, it's an important idea that he repeats again here, that they, they so readily welcomed the Word, even when they were being fiercely opposed for it, slandered and shamed by their friends and neighbors. They took the Word in. They welcomed it as an honored guest in their homes. They, 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 they craved the Word of God. They ate up the Word of God. Couldn't get enough of it. And it was because they recognized this isn't just Paul's own philosophy. This isn't just a word of man. This is God's Word. Loved ones, when we open up the Bible, when you open up the Bible, it is God's Word that you're reading. It's not words written merely by men. We can be tempted to treat the Bible as just, just as any other book. But, but this is God's very Word. The same God who spoke and the creation came into being, He speaks this Word. This is, this is uh, also what happens when we're preaching the Word faithfully. It's the very Word of God, the second Helvetic Confession. One of the great confessions coming out of the Reformation in Switzerland puts it like this. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. When the Scriptures are read, brothers and sisters, are you listening as though it's God speaking to you? When the Scriptures are preached, are you listening as though God is addressing you? When you see your Bible on the shelf at home, do you feel compelled, a desire to, that's God's Word, and you desire to read it, to open it, to take it in? It's not just another book. When Elizabeth II was crowned queen in 1953, the ceremony of her coronation included the presentation to her of a Bible. And as the archbishop gave it to her, he said, we present you with this book. The most valuable thing this world affords. Here is wisdom. Here is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Is God's word the most valuable thing this world affords to you? This is the mark of living vital faith that the Thessalonian church had. They desired this word. They, they welcomed it as the very word of God to them. Now, when we started this sermon here, we said that Paul was making the point here that we cannot live to please God and be a bold, effective witness without faith. And that faith must be produced by the Word of God. This Word's like the fuel that burns in the engine that, that, that drives us to please God and, and motivates our mission. We've seen now how faith is produced by the Word of God and, and how we respond to that Word if we have faith given by God. But I want, to, I want to just think for a second briefly here about how, how this works. How does it work that, that if we are welcoming the Word like this, that we will be filled with the desire to please God? I think it's fairly straightforward, right? If we don't know someone, 
We're not going to be driven to please them. Right? You can think of um, uh, the government. We might feel a duty to the government, to those in authority, but we don't feel a desire, probably, to, to please them. Right? But if, it's, if you think of a husband or a wife or, or children, think of your parents, right? you have this desire to please them because you know them. You've got a relationship with them. And so it is with, with the Lord. If, if you don't know Him through His Word, you won't have that desire to please Him. This is, this is how the Word works, though. This is how we know God. It makes us come to know Him. And that makes us see Him for who He is. And that frees us to be driven to please Him above all others. So if you feel like you lack boldness in any degree in proclaiming the gospel and bearing witness to it and, and speaking of Christ outside the church, inside the church. Go to the Word of God. Welcome the Word of God. Eat it up. And, and, and you'll find that, that, that your vision of who God is will clarify and grow. And your, 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 the weight you give to the opinions of men will shrink as you see God's glory in His Word, as you come to know Him through His Word. So, loved ones, that's how, that's how the Word works, as it produces faith in us, causing us this, to, to desire to please God, motivating us for witness. But this faith that the Word produces isn't a standstill thing. It's not static. It produces a vital faith and a persevering faith. And that's where Paul goes next, to talk about how the Word produces perseverance. This is verses 14 through 16 here. We actually pick up at the very end of Verse 13, Paul says, The word of God, which also works in you who believe. So he, he started in verse 13 talking about how the word worked among you, brought you to faith in the first place. Now he's saying the word works. It continues to work. It continues to be effective. What is it, what is it effective for? What's it, what's it produce? Verse 14 tells us, For you, brethren became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. So Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, the word continues to work in you. And I know it does, I see it does, because you're imitating the other churches, especially the churches that are in Judea and Jerusalem. And specifically, Paul points out that they are imitating these churches in Jerusalem and how they are persevering in the midst of suffering. So the word produces perseverance in the Thessalonians, just like the Jerusalem church. But there's a question here we need to answer before we press on and unpack this a little more. And that is, hang on here, what is the word that Paul is talking about? What is this word that produces perseverance that they're supposed to welcome and hold on to and, and the word that's effective in them? And it's the word of the gospel, specifically. That's what Paul is, continues to say over and over as he works through this, this letter here. We saw in uh, 1 verse 5, 2 verse 2, 2 verse 4, 2 verse 8, and 2 verse 9. He talks about preaching the gospel, how they welcome the gospel, how they receive the gospel. In our text here, Paul, he's speaking about receiving the word. He's referring to the same idea. They're welcoming the gospel. It's the word of the gospel that produces this perseverance. How does that work? How does that happen? Well, think about, brothers and sisters, think about what the gospel tells you. No other word tells you what the gospel tells you. Every other word collapses eventually under opposition 
and suffering. But the gospel doesn't. The gospel holds up ultimately under it because the gospel, right, whatever suffering threatens to take, the gospel promises to give something far better. For example, suffering threatens to separate us from God. It tempts us to think God doesn't love us, doesn't care about our situation, or that His hands are tied. Uh, that, that it tempts us to think God is aloof and distant, hard to get a hold of. Suffering threatens all those things. The Gospel says, no, you have union with Christ. You have the closest possible relationship with Christ. Paul, he, Paul himself talks about this as, as he goes on in the text. In verse 14, he describes the churches in Judea that are suffering as churches that are in Christ Jesus. The implication from that for the Thessalonians is, is that uh, if they are like these churches in Jerusalem, they also are in Christ Jesus. The churches in Jerusalem, the believers there are suffering as they are in union with Christ, in a relationship with Him, and so also the Christians here in Thessalonica, as they suffer, they do so in relationship with Christ. And then Paul draws this point out in verse 15. He says how Jesus suffered persecution at the hands of His own people. Jesus comes to the Jews and they reject Him. Uh, Most of His own family rejected Him for most of His earthly ministry. And then finally, He's crucified by those who should have welcomed Him and honored Him as King. And Paul is saying to the Thessalonians that they are suffering just in the same way Jesus suffered. That they're also getting slandered. Their families, too, are rejecting them for turning to Christ. Their parents, perhaps, are are disowning them. Spouses are perhaps angry with them. Neighbors may be spreading lies about them. Paul says, you are in good company. Christ suffered this way. You're suffering in union with Christ, in imitation of Christ. And, And here's what this means for them. It means that as they suffer, God is not distant. Christ is is not distant. God is not aloof from their suffering that they're in. He's not unsympathetic. Christ understands what they're going through. As Jesus appears to Paul on the Damascus road uh, in, in, in Acts, he says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus says the same idea in Matthew 25. He says in, in 25.40, he says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. The ascended Christ, in some mysterious way, understands and feels the pain that his church is going through, just as a husband sympathizes with mm-hmm. his hurting wife. Christ sympathizes with his church, even though he's in glory. We have an inseparable union relationship with the Lord Jesus. Nothing can separate us from him. That's what the Gospel says. That's what produces perseverance when suffering comes. Suffering says, this will separate you from the love of God. And the Gospel says, no, you're in Christ, inseparably in Christ. But the Gospel doesn't just do this. It would be enough if it did. But it does more, doesn't it? It gives us communion with the saints, too. As Paul tells the Thessalonian believers here, that when they suffer for Christ's sake, they're suffering not only in relationship with Christ, but they also have this relationship with the Christians in Judea. The Jews in Jerusalem at this time are being persecuted intensely and heavily. Uh, This is is the, the, the time of the early church. They're suffering at the hands of their brothers and sisters 
their physical brothers and sisters and those whom they thought were their spiritual brothers and sisters. Think of the early church, right? Stephen is stoned to death. James, the brother of John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, is, is, is killed with the sword. Many of them are being put into prison. Many of them are being slandered and shamed. And imagine that situation, right? Uh, you've grown up a, a, a Jew. Uh, you've, you've grown up. These people around you love you and care about you. You think you're worshiping the same Lord. The religious leaders, you, know, you think that you can listen and trust what they're saying. But then you come to see that Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. And that whole community is turning against you. Something similar to what happens in Thessalonica. As the, as the Greeks in Thessalonica turn to Christ, their communities and their families also are, are upset with them and, and cut them off. But Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, you've gained a better, larger, richer, older heritage and family. The, uh, the Christians there in Thessalonica may have felt like they, they lost their great cultural heritage that they had there in that capital city of that part of Greece, right? The heart of the Macedonian Empire where Alexander the Great was from. They may have thought, we lost that, but Paul is saying, your, your heritage now goes all the way back to Moses, Abraham. They've gained a better community. They've, they've gained a community without geographical boundaries, without ethic, ethnic boundaries, without cultural boundaries. And this family is founded on the gospel of Christ. It's remarkable that Paul draws this out here. He's, he's telling them, you, you Greeks have become part of the true Israel, the people of God, the chosen people of God. And the point, brothers and sisters, again, is this. Suffering threatens to cut us off from loved ones. It, it threatens that, that uh, we, will, we will be estranged from them. But the gospel promises suffering will actually bring us closer to the family of God. Those who are part of his people. So even in the midst of pain and grief at being estranged from loved ones, the word of the gospel produces perseverance. You're united with Christ. You're also united with the church of Christ, with this new family and the people of God. The third thing the gospel gives that Paul draws out here is the hope of final vindication. So suffering says... You're condemned by man. That's what's happening in Jerusalem. That's, what ha that's what's happening in, in Thessalonica. You're condemned by man. The gospel says you're vindicated by God. Paul brings this point out here as he continues to describe the Jews who oppose the believers in, uh, in Judea in verses 15 to 16. He writes this, They killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. In the court of public opinion, right, the, the Jewish Christians have been tried and they've been condemned. But Paul reassures us here that those who condemn them aren't living to please God, in contrast with how the Thessalonians themselves are living, those who oppose him don't please God, they're actually under the judgment of God. This is what matters to Paul, that, that we're not judged by man, we're judged by God. Only the heavenly court matters, not the court of public opinion. To, to Paul, the question is, is God pleased with me? 
if his, peop- if his own countrymen aren't pleased with him, though that grieves him deeply. The thing that, grieves, that would grieve him more is, is, is God displeased with me. His, his hope is that God is pleased with him. That's the motive that drives him. And this is, this is the, uh, the reassurance the gospel brings to Paul, that he will be vindicated. So Paul points out to the Thessalonians here that those who oppose the believers in Judea, just like those who oppose them in Thessalonica, are the ones who are actually under judgment. All right, so, so they're being condemned by those around them. Paul's saying, you're not the ones who are being truly condemned. They are the ones who are under wrath, under judgment. He says, wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. He says, they are filling up the measure of their sins. This is, this is the judgment God has given to them. It's interesting, Paul uses this language here for the Jews in, in Jerusalem, that they're filling up the measure of their sins. It is an ominous phrase. That's the phrase that was used back in the conquest as the people of Israel are coming into, coming into the promised land to conquer it and drive out the, the nations there. The nations there have filled up the measure of their sins. Um, back in, way back in Genesis, God is speaking to Abraham and he, and he says, when I, I'm going I'm to wait to bring the people into the promised land until the people there have filled up the measure of their sins. Same idea here. The, the Jews now are the ones who have filled up the measure of their sins. They've been given over to their sins. God has hardened their hearts. Romans 1.18 reveals to us that God has, has revealed His wrath and that this wrath hardens people to His Word, hardens them in their sin. We see this, right? We see it happen in AD 70 as the temple is destroyed. We, we see it uh, much more clearly. Uh, we, I mean, we will see it, right, as, as God's wrath is revealed finally and fully. These people are under His wrath. This isn't true just of those who don't believe in Jerusalem, but also of those who don't believe in Thessalonica and also, of course, in our day. Paul is saying to the church here, by, by telling them this, I think he's saying to them, it doesn't ultimately matter if you're condemned in the court of your peers. What matters is the judgment that's coming. In the last day, when you stand before God, the judge of all the earth, does it matter if man praises you or condemns you or if God is pleased with you or condemns you? And, and this, again, this is what the gospel tells us, right? So suffering says man condemns you, and, and, and that breaks our perseverance. But the gospel says Christ, in Christ you are vindicated. The gospel says that Christ took the wrath that you deserve. He, 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 he took it for you so that you would not be condemned. The gospel says Jesus was vindicated in his resurrection and loved ones, we have that great confidence that we also, on the last day, will be vindicated and raised from the dead in our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll stand before the judgment seat of God and He will say, you are not guilty. You are my well-beloved and I am pleased with you because of Christ. And that's what produces perseverance. In the most recent issue of New Horizons, maybe you've read this already, there's a story about this young man named Ruslan who came into contact with a mission work there in Lviv, Ukraine. He grew up in the Greek Catholic Church, um, but, but he, he, he started hearing the word that was being taught there at this mission work in Ukraine. He came to the English camp, and he started hearing about the gospel of God's grace. And it was compelling to him, and God's word produced faith in him. And he started welcoming 
that word more and more. And as he did it, it, uh, it, it brought him to the point where he was ready to become a member of the church there. So he became a member of the, the church there, the mission work. But when he did, his family started to think less of him and to question him. And extended family started to uh, uh, speak ill of him, treating him as an outcast. His former priest at the Greek Catholic Church started spreading rumors about him. Things are, you know, he's, he's suffering for the sake of the gospel. This is happening in our own day, in one of our own mission works. He's, his old community was cutting him off and casting him out. But God's word was at work in him, and it's, it's produced faith. And it's, and it's continuing to work. It's producing perseverance, right? Because he's holding on to the gospel of God. And it's, and it's producing boldness, too, in him. And his desire now is to become a, a minister of the word of God, to spread the gospel of God. He's being filled with boldness as the word produces a desire to please God in him. Brothers and sisters, I point that out just to give us an example from our own day. That, that this is the way the Word works. Effective faith and perseverance in us. That we might produce bold, that, uh, we might be bold and, and produce uh, effective ministry in our church. So let me close by encouraging you to welcome the Word of God as the Word of God. In your, in your private devotions, in your family life, in our church life, in the preaching of the Word. Hunger after it. Listen to it as the very Word of God, not the Word of man. This is the means, loved ones, that God will use to produce these things we desire to see. Let's pray together.